0: The scripture this morning is from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 33, beginning in verse 14 and going through verse 16. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I believe the Lord said that. I better double check. (laughs) And I will fulfill the good promise that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth from the Davidic line, and he will do what is right in the land. And at that time, Israel and Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this will be called the righteousness of our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of the interesting things about language is that uh, as time uh, passes and uh, different situations arise, sometimes words don't always mean what they originally meant. So now when we think of something as cool, it may not have anything to do with temperature. And when my kids were growing up, something was bad, wasn't really bad. When they said it was bad, they meant it was really good. And furthermore, if they were watching a basketball game and they called something really sick, It didn't mean that the person was in ill health. In fact, the person had done something only a person in extraordinary health could do. And the same, I think, is true when we come to the words of the church and the words of the Bible. They don't always mean what they have meant in the past. And so sometimes today the meaning changes and it's not always for the better. And so the word for today is righteous or righteousness. And at one time. Righteousness was a powerful, positive word in the scripture. But over time, we saw it put together with words like self to give us self-righteous or with words like indignation to give us righteous indignation. And very few of us have positive mental images when it comes to righteous indignation or self righteous behavior. And so over time, words can change. Well, this morning, I think it's real important to recapture the words righteous and righteousness and put the appropriate biblical spin back on them because they are words that are found all the way through the Bible or early in the Bible. In Genesis, in fact, Abraham believes God and we're told it's counted to Abraham as righteousness. Later, one of the minor prophets uh, reminds us that it is uh, the righteous people who live by faith. And you get to the New Testament, Jesus cautions his followers that their righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And then we get to Paul, and he talks a lot about righteousness. One of the things I did this summer was read kind of the latest research on Paul, and it was 1,500 pages, two-volume work, but all you need to know is the title. The title of this modern work is called Paul and the Righteousness of God. Righteousness is an important biblical term. And we find it today in the scriptures in Jeremiah when Jeremiah is promised uh, by God that, Jeremiah, that God is going to raise a righteous branch. And then as God does this work, the people will call it the Lord is our righteousness. So there you have it. Righteous and righteousness spring up, but I hope what you'll see is they don't spring up with judgment or condemnation or the failure of people, but they spring up in a completely different context. And context, I think, as you know, when we read the scripture is most everything. Sometimes the words righteous or righteousness will be found as an adverb, sometimes as an adjective. And today it's even found as a noun, the Lord is our righteousness. So it's important to know the context to try to figure out what a word means in any given situation. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you brief, a brief description of the context of Jeremiah, say a little bit more about that, and then tell you what I think righteousness means in the book of Jeremiah and what it might mean for our life. Let me give you the context of Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Things are real bad. That's the main thing for you to know. Really, really bad. This is more than 600 years before Jesus. And the people have been, for most of Jeremiah's ministry, surrounded by this oppressive force called the Babylonians. And toward the end of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, the Babylonians actually close in, move into town, capture the town, exact tribute, And then at the very end of Jeremiah's ministry, just to finish it all off, they go in and destroy the temple of God. The very temple of God gets destroyed. Things are bad. Things are basically hopeless and the people don't see um, uh, much of a future for themselves. All they see is the Babylonians. Now, what they've heard from Jeremiah up until chapter 33 is this. You're in trouble and it's your fault. And it's your, mainly, it's your leader's fault. They have not taught you to live in ways that are humble rather than arrogant, that care for the needy rather than oppress the needy. And because of this and because of your sins, I've brought the Babylonians in to punish you. Well, their first response to Jeremiah is, well, wait a minute. Maybe we can escape this punishment. And so they, uh, they try to make deals with surrounding countries like Egypt. Will you come join us? Will you bail us out against these wicked Babylonians? And interestingly, the prophet Jeremiah says, no, no, you don't have any tricks up your sleeve left. You need to surrender and accept what God has brought you because God will do something through this. But they're not finished yet. And they try to make deals. And they try to make compromises. And they try to save themselves with the end result that the hole that they're digging gets deeper and deeper. And the little bit of light that they have in their life has faded to complete darkness. They are at the end of their rope with no tricks left up their sleeve. When Jeremiah in chapter 33 addresses them, they are at the bottom of the pit and they are in the deepest despair. That's not a great place to be, but there is potential in being there. Uh, Some of us uh, are familiar with a a Catholic uh, priest named Richard Rohr. I I commend him to you, R O H R. One of the things that he's writing about in in weekly writing, uh, daily writings that you can sign up for, is um, the relation between the 12 steps of AA and recovery and our own spiritual life. And one of the important steps that uh, a person must go through to go to recovery, is to realize that they're finally, they're powerless, that they basically don't have any tricks up their sleeve, that they can no longer save themselves, that all the deals, the compromises, the plots, the plans, everything they tried is not going to work. They've come to the end of themselves. This is where Jeremiah's people are. And so God gives them an invitation now to call on a higher power. They can choose that or they continue to search if maybe they've got one more thing they could try. God confronts them with this, but confronts them with it with a word of hope, which is you're at the bottom and I'm getting ready to do something. They are people in darkest despair and despair is not foreign to our world. Even today, Uh, this sermon that I'm preaching to you this morning, I took a lot from the writings of the late John Claypool. and, And he talked about living in a large city, pastoring a large church during the race riots of the 1960s. And he said he remembers um, being at a meeting of religious leaders and just despairing that America could ever become a country where we could live next to each other uh, and accept each other, regardless of the differences that are between us. And he shared this with a group of religious leaders. And then after the meeting, he said, a rabbi pulled him aside and he said, he said, brother, I think you need to know this, that for the Jews, the most unforgivable sin is despair. Because despair presumes that God is relegated to the past and that God cannot and will not address our current situation. And I think that's where these people are. And the unforgivable sin of just despairing and thinking it's all over because they've tried every trick and none of it works. And into this context comes this word, I will cause a righteous branch to come out of David's line And then when it is done and things work out, what everyone will say is, the Lord is our righteousness. I want to talk to you about what righteousness means in this prophecy to people who are at the very bottom of the pit. Understand, I hope, that this word righteousness is not about condemnation, about judgment, about the things that they failed to do in the past. There's a place and time for that. But now is not the place I mean, the time and this is not the place. Righteousness is, first of all, in this prophecy, a word of hope. God is saying, I'm going to do something. You've reached the bottom. You're out of tricks, but I'm not. There's something more That I will do and what God does for them is something they cannot do for themselves and that's what righteousness is basically as Roger told the children one biblical definition of righteous is God keeps God's promises God says look I made a promise to Israel and Judah that they will survive and that I will do things for them and now I'm going to keep that promise. Uh, When you think about righteousness, first of all, don't think about what you and I have done wrong. Think about what God has done right. And what God does right is to always keep God's promises to give us hope and to give us future. And when you think of the word righteous, don't think of condemnation. Think instead of light rather than darkness, of hope rather than despair. So the first thing I need you to know is righteousness is first of all about what God does. But secondly, and this is very interesting to me, I hope you'll find it so. It's not just about what God does, but how God does it that is so bizarre. Because if you go all the way through the book of Jeremiah, the problem is the kings. Every king that followed after King David, quite frankly, stunk. Well, there are a few exceptions. Hezekiah, Josiah, a couple. I mean, we're in, in 300 plus, 400 years, a couple. The rest of them were terrible. And they didn't walk the way that they were supposed to walk. They didn't teach their people to care for others. And they are the reason that Judah, Jerusalem, is now in the pits. And so here's what's interesting. You and I are Christians. So for 2,000 years we've said Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that they looked forward to to come and save the people. And that is true. But imagine to be the first people who ever heard this prophecy Here's what God is saying. Remember those people that messed up? Remember those people that are causing you to be to go into slavery? Remember those people that screwed up so bad that you don't have enough food to eat and the temple that you built me is, is in the process of being destroyed? Remember those people? I'm going to use them to save you. Those Davidic kings who are so terrible in every way that you can imagine, I'm going to use them to bring about my help. One day there will be a Davidic king who's going to fix everything. Thinking problem that was bizarre they've been told now by jeremiah's whole life that the problem was the kings and now they're told the solution is the kings i hope you're beginning to see what i'm saying here that in god's righteousness the people who were the problem get the opportunity to be a big part of the solution that god is what we call the god of the second chance That even though the Davidic kings have messed it up, God's not finished with them. And in the little town of Bethlehem, in about 600 years, God is going to strike in a major way through those kings. Uh, When I think about the resurrection, I think it's similar to Advent in that it's a story of a God who makes promises about life and life eternal and then keeps them. But think about one of the key players in the uh, resurrection story. Jesus raises from uh, is risen from the dead and he, he some women find him. And the very first thing he says to them is, I want you to go and tell Peter that I'm going before him and I will meet him in Galilee. Do you remember, Peter, how many times did he deny Jesus? Three, right? We all know that. We learned it in Sunday school. He is a three-time offender. He has the three feet, the trifecta of faithlessness. And what are the angels told or what are the angels uh, rather the women told by Jesus is I'm starting with him not to get even with him, but to use him. The, the solution I'm bringing to the world, I'm going to start with Peter. The one who was the problem becomes the solution. It's an amazing thing that God does is God is always willing to give us that second chance and the Messiah himself is a beautiful second chance story. Now, what does that mean for us? Here's a couple thoughts. It means, first of all, that your past does not have to be your present. That just because I have messed up in the past, that I have failed in the past, that I've been a problem in the past, it does not mean that I'm doomed to always be the problem. A change can, in fact, through God, happen in me that I can become a part of the solution. Whatever it is that I've said that I shouldn't have said, did that I shouldn't have done, or left undone what I should have done, does not disqualify me or doom me to an endless cycle of defeat. I may have run out of tricks. I may have sowed my own, uh, the seeds of my own destruction. But God comes in and says, we're going to give this another shot. Your past does not have to be your present No matter what choices you've made, the present can be new, it can be different. And when that happens, that's the righteousness of God. To come in and keep promises and to do it with the very people who caused the problem in the first place. Now, so it's important to know that you have this open future. And let me tell you just briefly how it works. Uh, There's a story about a man that was in deep despair, and he went to his counselor, and he was getting nowhere, not making any progress, still in in, in a very dark place, uh, a place without hope. And so his counselor did something very interesting back in those days, which is about 40 years ago this happened. He, with permission of the clients, played tape-recorded parts of tape-recorded counseling sessions, and he gave, he gave this client an opportunity to listen to six of them. Three from people who could not and would not climb out of despair and three who climbed out of despair. And he made the client listen to these tapes very carefully and the client figured it out. What the client noticed was on the three that never recovered from despair, the phrase they used over and over and over was these two words, if only, if only. I hadn't said that. If only I hadn't made that change. If only I hadn't gotten in the car that day. If only I hadn't answered that phone. If only, It was always about the past, if only. Three other tapes were played of people who began by God's grace to move out of despair. And you heard two words over and over, but they weren't if only. Interestingly, the two words were next time. Next time. I did this, this happened, but next time I will do this. I did this, I said something I shouldn't have said, but next time I won't. I I omitted this, I should have done this for this person, I didn't do it, but next time I will. And the people that moved from despair to hope had a focus not on the past, but on the future. And they intuited that even though they had been a cause of their own problem... With God's help, they could be a part of their own solution. And when that happens, that's righteousness. When God keeps God's promises through the very people who broke their promise, that's righteousness. And then, this is the other thing I want you to know, the beautiful thing then is, we get to be a part of what God is doing, not just for ourselves, but for others. I'm so grateful that God gives me a future. My past doesn't have to be my past, so I can be emotionally and spiritually healthy. But that's not God's only end game. God's end game is that Jerusalem and all Judah will be healthy. In other words, not just us, but our world will be healthy. And God gives us an opportunity, regardless of how we failed in the past, to be a part of what God is doing in the future. And when we become a part of God's good plan for the world, that is called, on our part, righteousness. When we get to be an answer to someone else's problem. I'm not sure the story is true. It may very well be apocryphal. But the story is of one of those traveling uh, children's choirs from Uganda or other African country. This was Uganda that was coming and singing at different churches in the States. And so after a performance one evening, there was a question and answer time between the children and people in the the congregation. So one man raised his hand and said, do you ever lose faith and hope in God? When you pray for food for you and for the other children, or for shoes on your feet and the other children, and God doesn't send it and it doesn't come. And the little boy's answer was fascinating. He said, no. He, just, I, he said, I just figure that, God is, that the people that God has told to send food and shoes haven't heard him yet. The opportunity to be a part of what God is doing to bring help to the world. That's God's righteousness. But on the other hand, it's also our being a part of God's righteousness. The story is told of a military man, a man of good character, great strength, and great honor, who one day is come, comes home from work, and his son, Timmy, who's five years old, rushes out to greet him. It's Christmas time, and in his class, Timmy has made a vase for his father. And with great excitement, as the father gets out of the car, walks up the driveway, Timmy rushes to show him the vase, but he trips and he falls. And the vase, though it's wrapped lightly, breaks into all sorts of pieces. And Timmy begins to cry uncontrollably. And Father, the man of courage and strength, says to him, Timmy, don't cry. Don't cry, Timmy. It doesn't matter, it doesn't make any difference. Don't cry. Fortunately, mother's a little wiser than father about these sorts of things. She gets down on her hands and knees in the driveway and she says to Timmy as she starts to pick up the pieces, she says, It does matter. It does make a difference when something valuable or beautiful is broken. Now, help me pick up these pieces. Let's see what we can make. And let's see if we can make something beautiful with what is left. When you make something beautiful out of what is left of the pieces of a broken world, there's a word for that. And the word is righteousness.